Matthew chapter 13. We're going to read from verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came to him and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. And now look at verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitudes away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. And harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The parable has gone by many names. The parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the weeds and the grain. But I'm calling it the parable of the make-believer was J. Vernon McGee who was fond of saying, I believe in the assurance of the believer and I believe in the non-assurance of the make-believer. Once again, Jesus doesn't leave the meaning of this parable to mere speculation or guesswork. Now remember what a parable is. It's an earthly story that represents a heavenly truth. There's a reason why it's called a parable. It means to lay side by side and then compare. Two more parables will follow this one. The parable of the mustard seed in verse 31 and 32. The parable of the leaven and the loaves in verse 33. Satan is clever. Satan is a deceiver. And even though he is an intelligent spirit being, he doesn't have an original bone in his rebellious angelic body. He is a counterfeiter. He is an imitator. The next three parables, Jesus describes the tactics that Satan employs in order to damage believers and destroy the church. 
Satan will plant false Christians. He will encourage false growth. He will introduce false doctrine. His main weapons include pain, but also infiltration and deception. Satan hates the believer. And he loves the make-believer. People counterfeit real money, not play money. People counterfeit real art, not fake art. Only valuable things are counterfeited. In a coin magazine that I was reading, there was a man who offered fake diamonds that fooled experts on the television show 2020. I have real ancient coins and I have fake ancient coins. In my travels, both to Italy and Greece, in the Jordan and, and in different places, I've, I've come a, across a number of people who have tried to sell me fake coins. I remember one particular instance when we were getting ready to go in, into Jordan, a person said, do you want to buy some coins? Do you want to buy some real ancient coins? And I said, sure, show me what you got. And he brought the coin and I went... Hey, you know what? This is a clever cast forgery. And he goes, You mean you want real ones? <laughs> and I said, This is hardly the right way to begin a relationship based on deceit and fraud. The reason Satan seeks to plant fake followers in the soil of the church is because he is unable to uproot the true believer. And that should give you a profound sense of confidence and joy and hope. No matter how many fake Christians are planted in your midst, it won't change even for a moment those who have come into a right relationship with God and Christ who have genuinely turned from their sin, who have genuinely embraced Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Through this parable, Jesus will give his disciples instructions on what to do and on what not to do as we face infiltration in the world, in the church, and even in our own hearts. Look again at verse 24. It says, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and then he went his way. In the parable of the soils and the sower, the seed represented the word of God. The soil, you'll remember, represented different kinds of hearts. But in this parable, the seed represents all the people who hear the word of God and respond to the word of God and are broken and embrace the word of God and are changed by the word of God. Those who are born again, who trust the Lord Jesus as their savior. You'll remember in verse 38, it says, the good seed are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. True Christians trust the word of God. True Christians hear, respond, and are changed. The make-believer can hear, but isn't necessarily changed. Counterfeit Christians 
are suspicious of the word of God. They doubt the word of God. Some of them even go so far as to deny the word of God. In this parable, the field isn't the human heart. Jesus makes it clear that the field is the world in which we live in. His words in verse 38. The Lord Jesus is the sower in verse 37. Jesus is sowing the seed and reaping the harvest and planting people in this world and in churches. Jesus finds people, saves people, places them in congregations so that they could bring forth fruit. It's God's will that you bear fruit. Fruit that remains. Fruit that abides. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 23 through 26, we read that Jesus foretells his own execution. He says, quote, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will produce much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, that's where my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor, unquote. We're saved by Jesus. We're saved by Jesus to glorify God. Like the ancient reformer said, we exist to glorify the God who created us. The Bible seems to indicate that the reason we exist is for friendship and fellowship. But you were also born again to bring forth fruit. And contrary to the popular culture or even to the apostate church, you don't exist to satisfy yourself, to please yourself, to make sure that you are taken care of, but rather to bring forth fruit. Look what it says at the end of verse 38. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Maybe one of the most frequently asked questions that I get on my radio program and that I get in person and that I myself had before I became a Christian is why is there evil in the world? It's an important question. It's one that each and every Christian has to think about, pray about. And consider, as we address the very real broken issues of the world in which we live in, what I also would remind people who are asked the question, why is there evil in the world? It's to ask yet another question. And that is, the very question implies that there is such a thing as good. Why is there good in the world? Is there anything decent? Is there anything right? Is there anything worth believing in? Some people ask the question a little bit differently. Why is the devil allowed to roam free? Years ago in a prayer circle at a school in Paducah, Kentucky, an enraged 13-year-old boy brought a weapon from home and shot and killed three girls in a Bible study group. 
In West Nickel Mines, Charles Carl Roberts took hostages and shot eight out of the ten girls who were aged six years old to 13. He killed five before committing suicide in the Amish schoolhouse. We live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world where evil is allowed to live side by side with God's children for a season. In the ancient world in which Jesus spoke, when a farmer planted a field of wheat, sometimes a a jealous or an angry neighbor would sometimes come and sow tares. Tares aren't just any kind of weed. There are certain things that are obviously not fruit. Tares look like wheat. They have the same color of wheat. They have the same texture. They have the same fragrance. Tares look and smell and feel just like wheat. When both mature, wheat will form grain on its head. Tares require soil, fertilizer, water, sun, and they take up space. Tares take in everything that wheat also needs. Wheat will eventually give back fruit. Tares will only produce a seed that is poisonous if it is eaten. Real Christians, true believers, produce fruit for the kingdom. Counterfeit Christians can only manage counterfeit fruit. By the way, the Romans passed laws making it a criminal offense to sow tares in another person's wheat field in order to try to undermine that farmer's crop. And in this world, there are make-believers, counterfeit believers, People who name Christ, claim Christ, claim Christianity. You may have met someone who claimed to be a Christian. And they would say something like what I said when I was asked, are you a Christian? Someone asked me. I said, of course I am. I'm a Catholic. But I wasn't a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. And I certainly wasn't a good Catholic by any stretch of the imagination. You couldn't do the things that I did, say the things that I said, and in all honesty, call yourself a Christian. Maybe you've met someone who goes to church. They carry a Bible. They might even read it. They might even know it. They might give money on occasion. They might help the poor. They might do good deeds. But they've never had a real relationship with Christ. They've never confessed their sin. They've never been broken over their sin. They've never cried out to Jesus for help and for hope. Counterfeit Christians look just like the tares. They smell, grow like real Christians. The Lord Jesus identifies the enemy who sowed them as the devil in verse 38. That should remind each and every one of us that Jesus believed in a real devil and a real Satan. Counterfeit Christians aren't just simply self-made men and women. 
They are clever designs of Satan. We might even say demon designed. Jesus accounts for evil in the world and in part points to the existence of these supernatural beings, spirit beings called demons. God allows both evil and good, counterfeit and real, to exist side by side until, according to Jesus, the day of judgment comes. And since counterfeit Christians are designed by the master counterfeiter, the father of lies, you can imagine that his deceptions are sometimes very, very good. And that's why Paul says, shouldn't shock you or surprise you that the devil himself will sometimes appear like an angel of light. And so, there are counterfeit Christians in real churches. Like I said, it's been my experience that there are counterfeit coins in almost every major coin collection in the world. And there are counterfeit Christians in real churches living and praying and acting and sometimes serving and sometimes giving, but their heart hasn't changed. And so in verse 30, Jesus says, let both grow together until the time of the harvest. What's interesting about that statement is we're not so much called to uproot evil as we are to plant the truth. I want to repeat that. Our job isn't simply or specifically to uproot the evil, but to plant the truth. Jesus allows for the fact that good and evil and true and false and fake and genuine will grow together until the time of the end. And like so many people, I wondered as an unbeliever, why does God allow pain and why does he allow suffering and why does he allow the good and the bad and the evil to exist side by side? So if I wanted somebody to go away, I would ask them that question. Why is there good and evil? Why is there suffering in the world? And I was hoping that they would give me some sort of answer that would wind them down a road of philosophical disconnect so that I never, ever had to consider the claims of Christ. What no one ever said to me was that the reason why that there's evil is so that you, that God would be patient with you so that you would one day get saved. You see, it never occurred to me that God allowed me to exist. It wasn't just a philosophical question about the presence of good or the presence of evil. It was the reality of God allowing me to exist in my rebellion, in my disobedience. There was something very disgusting inside of my heart that stood in contrast to the pockets of goodness and decency that God had allowed in this world. God allowed me to exist even though I was at odds with the king of the universe. He allowed me exist in my wretched, sinful condition in the hopes that I would hear the gospel and respond to the gospel, that I would surrender my foolish rebellion, trust Jesus to forgive my sin and cleanse my heart. And no matter how good we think we are, each and every one of us have pockets of moral failure, some worse than others. 
Even Jesus, when he picked the 12 disciples, he said, have I not chosen you 12? And one of you is a devil. And so Jesus will also point out that real Christians in the counterfeit world, remember in the parable, the servants of the master, in verses 28 and 29, they asked the question, he said, look, an enemy has done this. The servant said, what do you want us to do? Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no. Lest while you gather up the, th- the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. We have fake Christians in the real church, but we also have real Christians in a broken world, a painful world, in a world that stands in rebellion and disobedience to God. We know that the devil has lied and we know that he is deceived and we know that he's trapped people to believe all kinds of things that simply aren't true. That you don't matter. That your life doesn't matter. That it doesn't matter what you do or who you do it with. The disciples ask the question, what are we to do? What do we do in light of this fact? There are make-believers in the world who believe that there are Christians and they are not Christians. What are we supposed to do? When I worked for the Department of Social Services, I had one of those amazing events that sometimes take place in our life. I was working with the Department of Social Services and a man started to die in our lobby. And I don't know if you've ever watched a person die. But I went out to the lobby... And he had collapsed, and he was breathing, and then he stopped breathing, and I didn't know know what to do. I didn't know CPR. I'd watched people on TV give mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, but I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what to do. Should I pound the heart? We later discovered that the man's heart had just simply given out. At, the, at this very moment, there are people who are suffering. There are people who have been wounded. There are people who are dying. Why am I even bringing up all of this? Because knowing the origin of the injury, knowing that you have a heart problem, knowing that you might get hurt, knowing that something could happen to you, doesn't change the fact that evil exists. We can see the manifestation of it. Knowing the origin of something going wrong doesn't make it go away. The wheat read grain. The tares read weeds. They're growing together. What can we do? The text itself offers two suggestions. One of the suggestions is by the servant. Hey, let's get rid of them. Let's yank them up. Let's put them in baggies. Let's haul them to the trash. Let's put them in the dump. Let's burn them. I want to point something out to you. Does the master of the field want the weeds to go away? Yeah. Do the servants want the weeds to go away? They share a common goal. They both want the weeds to go away. What they differ on is the methodology to get rid of them. The servants suggest focus on the tares, pull them up, focus on them, Tear them up. Get rid of them. And by the way, this sounds very appealing. 
Especially if you hear someone talk about rooting out evil and pulling down strongholds and ripping evil from the fabric of our culture and the fabric of our society and the fabric of our church. And there's plenty of evil out there. But we've got to come to grips with the fact that for some of us, there's plenty of evil in here. I want you to note something. There's a reason why the master says, wait, wait. There's some difficulties associated with just simply going in gangbusters, pulling out the weeds. This provides us with a surprising insight if we're willing to just simply believe the text. Jesus cares more about planting wheat and bearing fruit than pulling weeds. When I was a kid, we had a garden, and sometimes when I discovered a weed growing close to a vegetable, I would hit the weed, but I would also hit the vegetable. In my zeal to remove the offending weed, I wound up hurting the very vegetables that we were trying to grow. We are faced with evil in a world. The parable is not suggesting that we ignore evil. The parable is not suggesting that we do nothing. Jesus reminds the disciples that we just simply don't want to injure real believers in the process of recognizing that there are make-believers. Our first impulse is to root out the evil, tear down the false temples, smash the false doctrine, burn the make-believer, tie them to a theological stake, and then burn them with the fires of hell. There will always be a following for people who prefer that method. But there are problems with that approach. Jesus is suggesting something different in verses 29 through 30. In the process of uprooting evil, we run the risk of damaging that which is good. And remember, tares and wheat look identical, particularly when they're young. Wheat will develop ahead of grain when it matures. And the older that it gets, the more grain begins to accumulate on the head. And then the wheat itself will begin to bow low to the earth from which it sprung. And much like the Christian who in age and maturity will bear fruit in humility, they'll begin to bow down to the sovereign will of God to release the fruit that is necessary to maintain nourishment, much like the Christian who bears fruit and in humility bows down to the will of God, the humble grain and the believer gets lower and lower and lower the more fruit that it bears. And so it takes real wisdom and discernment and careful judgment to distinguish the real Christian from the make-believer. You know, you would think anyone could tell a real Christian from a fake Christian, but it's not so. It's just simply not true. Saul thought he was doing God a favor by destroying the followers of Jesus. The medieval church thought that they were doing both God and the world a favor when they burned John Huss at the stake. 
The Pope thought he was doing God a favor when he arrested and then imprisoned Martin Luther. I'm sure there were many people who thought that they were doing Martin Luther King Jr. a favor by throwing him into a Selma, Alabama prison cell. I'm sure the high priest, when he accused Jesus of blasphemy and tore his robe and sentenced Jesus to death, thought that he was doing God a favor. And I used to think that I was a pretty good judge of character. But time has proved me wrong. I'll look at a person. But I still, even though I have this shocking white hair, I still don't have the ability to look inside of a person's heart. I can't discern their motives or their intents. You can't tell an honest person by simply looking at them. Good and evil, right and wrong, real and fake Christians are hidden by something we call intent or motive. So what's going on in our parable? I think that Jesus is in effect saying, don't judge the make-believer's heart. Be careful how you label people. Make sure that you're looking for reasons to include people instead of exclude people. Don't hurt the make-believer. You might find yourself offending a true believer. Remember what Jesus said? It would be better that a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the ocean. Some of us are willing to kick the unworthy member out of our church. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes discipline is necessary and disfellowship is necessary. I'm not talking about church discipline. What I'm talking about is a refusal to welcome people who don't look like us or talk like us or act like us. It's for the person who doesn't necessarily share your political or ideological views. We sometimes only welcome people who we think look like us and talk like us and act like us. What if I decide that there are people who should leave? And by the way, as the pastor of your church, I'm not looking for re reasons for people to leave. I'm looking for reasons for people to stay. But imagine that if I rip the ugly tear out from among us, and then I rip out another, and I rip out another, and I rip out another until finally all that we have is a barren field. By the way, Clovis Chapel said, if love will not win him to a good life, ostracism will not, unquote. I think he's right. It would appear that Jesus doesn't want us wasting our time tearing out the tares, pulling and uprooting the, the make-believer. Because to do so requires knowledge that I simply don't possess. And that you simply don't possess. You see, the truth is, only God knows the truth about the human heart. And the more time we spend criticizing and ripping the tares, the less time we have to plant wheat. We could pull out every single weed but then there's no harvest.
if we're hoping for a harvest of souls, we have to preach the gospel. We have to reach the lost. We have to give people Jesus. We have to give people hope in the circumstance that they find themselves in. If I pull out the weeds from the garden of your soul, will I make you a saint? What do you think the answer is? No. What makes a saint a saint? Jesus makes a person a saint. It isn't the presence of weeds in your life. It's the presence of Christ in your life. By the way, has any nation, has any single city, has any single church, has any single individual ever been purged of all of their sin? The answer is no. No one is admitted into heaven because of the absence of sin. Everyone is admitted into heaven because of the presence of Jesus in their life and in their heart. It's the death of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. The love of Jesus. He becomes the source of life and love and fruit and hope. And so real judgment is predictably in the future. Look what it says at the end of verse 30. First gather together the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them and gather the wheat into my barn. And, and again in verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. A supernatural being creates the problem. And a supernatural being will be utilized to reap the harvest. I find that very interesting. There's a reason you're not to judge the eternal condition of a person's heart. It isn't simply because of the fact that you don't have sufficient information in order to make that judgment. The second reason, and even the more compelling reason, is that this is something that Jesus has reserved for himself only. Jesus has said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth by my Father. You should wake up every single morning. You should wake up every single morning and say, God, I thank you. I thank you that Gino isn't the person who determines whether or not I go to heaven. Can you imagine if I was assigned that task? You get to go because I say so, and you're refused entrance into heaven because I say so? What could be more wicked and wrong than that? Aren't you glad it's not your husband who determines whether you go to heaven or hell? Or your wife or your children? Or the person sitting in front of you or in back of you? We should thank God that the decision lies in his wisdom and in his counsel and in his choice. Well, does that mean you have no choice? You play no role? No, I think that the answer is you do play a role. You get to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. Remember what the text says? He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Open up your heart and open up your ears. 
Right now, it may seem difficult to tell the true believer from the make-believer. Right now, it may be difficult to tell the true Christian from this person who simply professes Christianity in Christ. In the end, the angels will separate the wheat from the tares. And we're quick to judge. We judge a person's character. We judge a person's conduct. We sometimes make a judgment based on a single act. But Jesus judges based on Every single thing from the moment that you were conceived. When you began the journey in the womb of your mother. When you were born and lived in every breath that you will draw until the last breath that you exhale. No one who sees only a small part is properly prepared to judge the whole. So what will happen to the tares in verses 40 and 42? Read it for yourself. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. And will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. He's talking. He's making an emotional expression. This isn't just going to be some philosophical or theological issue has been finally decided. There's going to be a visceral response. Judgment delayed is not judgment denied. And judgment may seem like a far off proposition, but it will be a permanent position. It may look like people are getting away with murder and blasphemy and injustice. It may seem that goodness has no reward right now, that the evildoer is being rewarded right at this very moment, but God has reserved the right to judge and he will. God God will gather the tares into bundles, his words, Jesus' words, And burn them. The tares are here in the church. But I'm not going to suggest that the tares are already simply growing together. Far apart from one another. But sometimes in thick bunches they begin to collect. And they're going to make it easy for the angel to reap. There are so-called churches that deny the deity of Jesus, salvation by grace, that deny the doctrines of grace, that deny the teachings of Jesus, who make light of our Savior's death, who deny his resurrection from the dead. False religions and false cults are gathering together into neat little piles to make the angel's job fairly easy. But I see the same thing happen among those who embrace counterfeit Christ and counterfeit gospels. In verse 40, the words gathered and burned, they're graphic words. These are shocking words. These are graphic and startling words. Jesus taught there are false believers, counterfeit Christ, deceivers and deceived who will be punished in hell. Jesus is explaining the parable. In the end, there will be punishment for those who have rejected God and rejected Christ. All things that offend, those who practice lawlessness. The people in verse 41 are everyone who causes sin, practices evil. 
And there are people who will say, I just don't believe that. I just simply don't believe that. I can't believe that God would do such a thing. Well, what do you imagine? I imagine a God of love who accepts everyone every time. I believe in a God absent justice. But they fail to realize that love without justice ceases to be love. And justice without love ceases to be justice. One of two things is true. Jesus is right about the future. Or he's not right about the future. Jesus has made the claim that he comes from God with God's message. And in the beginning of the church, infiltration wasn't the first strategy. It was persecution. There were 10 major persecutions of Christians in the first three centuries. Nero, 54 to 68. Domitian, 81 to 96. Trajan, 98 to 117. Antoninus Pius and Marcus Aurelius and and. Again, 138 to 180, Severus, Maximus, Decius, Valerian, Aurelian. Finally, we come to Diocletian. And Emperor Diocletian proved to be the worst of all. When Diocletian lost battles in Persia, his generals told him it was because he had neglected the gods of Rome. He had neglected the ideals of Rome. He had neglected the religion of Rome. And so Diocletian ordered all the military personnel to worship the Roman gods, forcing Christians out of the army and into the closet. We didn't invent, don't ask, don't tell. Diocletian did. At first, he said, if you're a Christian, keep your mouth shut. But finally, it became so severe after purging the Christians from the military that Diocletian surrounded himself with anti-Christian advisors who suggested that the best thing to do was just get rid of them, lock, stock, and barrel. And so Diocletian said, burn their scriptures. And the general said, We'd love to burn their scriptures. What are their scriptures? We're Roman generals. We're not Christians. It's a clever thing, huh? If they go, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Hey, how do you know all that? Just saying. Diocletian said, whatever they're willing to die for, burn it. And massive amounts of the New Testament that you enjoy were gathered and together and burned. In 303 AD, Diocletian consulted the oracle temple of Apollo at Didyma, which told him to initiate a great empire-wide persecution. And so Diocletian had his military systematically go province by province, arresting church leaders, burning the scripture, destroying churches, cutting out people's tongue, boiling Christians alive, cutting their head off. Our job isn't to root out the tares, the false Christians and the make-believers. God's reserved that for himself. And so we're wasting time when we attempt to do so. But we are obligated to evaluate our own heart and determine what's going on inside of our heart 
I need to know about my own spiritual condition and my own destiny. Satan made a concentrated effort to weaken and destroy the church through persecution. But then he changed his tactic. He thought, if you can't beat them, join them. With the edict of Constantine in 313, Christianity was made the state religion. John Corson writes, Satan, in essence, joined the church, unquote. And so the real danger went from persecution to infiltration. And the problem persists. You have brothers and sisters all over the world who woke up this morning in pain and under enormous pressure. And you woke up this morning and there were other Christians who decided that they're going to take their Bible and they're going to take their wife and they're going to take their children and they're going to go to church and they're going to go through the motions but they don't even for a moment believe this is true. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, Paul writes, In journeys often, in perils of water, perils of robbers, perils from my own countrymen, perils from the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren. There's a reason why he says false brethren. It's because they exist. And the false brethren believe a false gospel. And they follow a false Christ. And they reject the truth. And they accept pleasure and unrighteousness. Because sin makes them feel good. But Jesus is going to remind us of something. That the only effective way to overcome evil is by doing good. Paul wrote, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil by doing good. When you live in a world that's congested and choked by the tares, Jesus' advice is plant wheat. Plant wheat. Produce fruit. Prepare for the harvest. And now we begin to see that these writings are doing what they were meant to do. They will reveal truth to the person who loves the truth. And it will conceal truth from the person who has no interest in it whatsoever. So, We're back to what J. Vernon McGee said. I believe in the assurance of the believer. And I believe in the non-assurance of the make-believer. What is the condition of your heart? What is the circumstance of your soul? Have you experienced forgiveness of sin? Have you been reconciled to God by Jesus Christ? Has the gospel been planted deep inside of your heart and is it bearing fruit and the older that you get 
does it put you in a position of <laughs> maturity and humility and opportunity for people to partake of your life? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray for the person who sees in their heart darkness, pain, confusion. For the person who's experiencing guilt and wants relief from that guilt. Lord, I pray that they would trust you even now. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you. I, I pray that they would pray us a simple prayer. Heavenly Father. You know I'm a sinner. You know that I'm in need of a savior. You know that my heart is dark and my deeds are disgusting. And I thank you, Lord, that you allowed evil to exist alongside of good so that my heart could be changed. So my darkened circumstance could become light. So that my empty, barren field of a heart could be like soil prepared to receive grain and hopefully a harvest in the not too distant future. So Lord, I pray that you would plant deep within my heart the seed of the good news. And Lord, I pray that you would write my name in the Lamb's book of life and that I could walk with you as a believer and that when the angel comes, they'll be able to tell the difference between the believer and the make-believer. In Jesus' name. If that's you and you prayed that prayer, there are men and women who would love to be able to talk with you, pray with you, give you encouragement and resources to help you in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, let's stand.